Hello and thank you once again for joining us for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. I am joined by my good friend Joe. Good evening, Chess. Good evening. And Joe, plenty of, I'd say, news to talk about this week. Stuff that's happening in and around the NFL. And then we'll probably end on a quick review of one of the games before we jump into next week. But... Uh, I feel like I'm very tired about talking about this, but it can't be ignored. Let's, shall we discuss Aaron Rodgers and that Green Bay and Kansas City game? We can discuss a game. We can discuss Aaron Rodgers. Where do you want to start, Charles? Nowhere, if I'm perfectly honest with you. I don't want to talk about any of it, but why don't we talk about Aaron Let's Rodgers, talk about Rodgers first, first yeah, right? and, and how yeah. that has led to the game that we saw at the weekend. So why are you upset with your quarterback, Charles? Tell me what's up. Well, for a start, he essentially lied about being vaccinated. I know he used the word immunized, but let's get real here. You misled people, okay? And when you think about people like Cole Beasley, who actually got booed at the Bills Stadium, I just think that you know how important an issue this is. And look, whether you choose to get vaccinated or not, that's your call. But don't be shady about it and understand the implications that that's potentially going to have on you and your team. I think that's just it. I mean, I'm not going to judge on people's vaccination thing. I think perhaps there is an argument you have a responsibility as a quarterback for full disclosure. I think we've both been uh, double jabbed, not (laughs) immunised. So it's not like I'm an anti-vax or or anything at all. But I think that if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But you're right, it's how shady he was, how he used immunised in that kind of way. After he had been specifically told by the NFL that the homeopathic nonsense which he had didn't count, and rightly so. So it's these lies, and then when he knows full well that he's not been vaccinated, but acting like he is vaccinated, all the times he didn't have a face mask on when he was an inactive player because he hadn't suited up, in the preseason games, all the sponsorship stuff he's been doing when he shouldn't do. He knows his rules and he's egregiously and on purposely breached these rules. That's what he should be getting heat for. And I mean, there's an investigation which is going on now, but I mean, he should be banned. I don't see any other way around this. He should be banned. The team should be fined. These are facts. But will he get away with it because it's Aaron Rodgers? I personally think he will get away with it because he's Aaron Rodgers. But even as a Green Bay fan, I completely agree with it. You cannot set out a series of rules and standards that the league need to follow. And then when someone flat out breaks those rules, just kind of roll over and go, oh, well, we'll get them next time. You need to show that these rules are important to you and the league and the, they're there to protect people. And therefore, you need to issue harsh punishments to those that put others at risk. Absolutely. And uh, this kind of ties on from the stuff that we were saying about Rogers at the start, this kind of bratty, me, me, me way of acting that, you know, some of it is media driven. Some of it is storyline. That's how he's been portrayed. That's what kind of grabs the headlines. But it's hard to continue building a case for him or supporting him when he's pulling tricks like this. Yeah. And that's part of my other grievance as well. He's made such an issue about how the organisation hasn't respected him, hasn't listened to him, hasn't supported his ambitions. And then we go, okay, let's do one last season. He's then the one that lets the organisation down. And and it just smacks of hypocrisy and double standards, really. Absolutely. I, I, I don't really think there's an awful lot to say, aside from he should be getting a suspension. 
And I think that if the league doesn't give him a suspension, it's a terrible sign of double standards. When you look at the fines that the Raiders got for, you know, there were breaches, but far less significant than this one. I don't see any way around it. And as we have seen, and now let's get on to the game, as we have seen, the Packers without Aaron Rodgers are a very, very different proposition. Yeah, they are. Um, I mean, thank goodness for our defence in that game because it was the only thing that kept us in it. I think that's the best that your D's probably played in the last two seasons. Yeah. It's slightly a challenging benchmark because we don't really know how bad the Kansas City Chiefs are playing right now. But at the end of the day, they held Patrick Mahomes to two touchdowns, which, you know, even if they are playing bad, isn't a bad result. Oh, you would take that on any given week. The defense stepped up and did exactly what was asked of them. Special teams is still an absolute disaster beyond belief. And Love looked desperate. I think the one thing I would say, and this isn't to take anything away from Love's bad performance, but the one thing I was really surprised by was, you know you've got your rookie quarterback in there. You know that this is the Chiefs. I don't understand why Matt LaFleur didn't turn to the run game a little bit more to help Love out. You know, you've got Dylan and Jones in that position that can punch holes in plays and it seemed really, really surprising that almost every play was a throw. And I don't know whether part of that decision came from, we don't have Aaron Rodgers, we're going against the Chiefs. I don't want to say almost chalking the loss up already, but it was more an opportunity for Green Bay to see what they had in love. Let's make him throw. Let's see what we've got. And let's not worry too much about the outcome. Because otherwise, I can't put I rationale so. around it. But then what's the rationale for not turning to the run at all? When you're chasing the first seed in the conference, every win is so important. Every win is so, so important. It just seems a mental coaching decision. So... Okay, maybe you're scripting, say, and it always is the case, you're scripting the first kind of 10 plays of the first quarter. You're, you're scripting the first drive. After that, if you see what the D's doing, you see the successes you're getting, you switch up and adjust your game plan to what's happening out there. I, I just don't buy for a second that they were just throwing love out there and just seeing what they'd get with him. It's too important. Every game is too important when you're trying to get that first seed. I think that the game plan was what it was. They responded how they did. A question I have for you, Charles, just before we move on with this one. Do you think there's a mechanical issue with how Love is throwing the ball? I was watching the game, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a quarterback's coach, so I'm not exactly 100% kind of qualified to say, you know, how a player should be throwing the ball or not. But it seemed to me the arc on the ball every time Love was throwing it was a very, very high arc, especially when he was going downfield. Now, that implies to me that either there's a mechanical issue with how he's throwing the ball, or he doesn't have the arm strength to throw lasers past middle distance at best. Do you pick that up as well? There were two things that I picked up about Love and, and the way he throws. One of them was that, and it annoyed the hell out of me because I was watching the game and I just thought, throw one straight pass. Throw one pass that you just haven't lobbed in the air and is so easy to pick off. The other thing was, he only seemed to complete passes when he was on his back foot. And when he stepped back and he threw that pass on his back foot, they were connecting. When he wasn't doing that, they weren't. Um, both of them are issues if they're affecting his ability to make successful passes. But then you look back to, what, his last season in college? I think he... Didn't he have something like 17 interceptions in his last season in college? And he wasn't even in a particularly competitive division in college. 
And this is the thing, in college as well, you're often getting blown coverage a lot more. The standard of the defense is just nowhere near what they are in the NFL, but whereas the wide receivers are still fast, still, you know, getting separation. So when you're throwing these kind of arky balls that are kind of going up, it's less likely that they're going to get picked off. It's less likely they're going to get defended. In the NFL, you you just look at the best quarterbacks. You, you talk about arm strength. You talk about being able to put the ball on a spot. Herbert doesn't throw arcs like that. You know, Josh Allen doesn't throw arcs like that. Mahomes doesn't throw arcs like that. There's a lot more directness and force behind the ball when they throw the ball. And it, I just couldn't watch that game without thinking there was something mechanically wrong there. But look, at the end of the day, I can't say what that is. I'm not sure if the ball is coming out of his hand the wrong way. I'm not sure if it is an Armstrong thing. I'm not a quarterbacks coach. But it would be interesting if anyone does know anything more or if we hear something about it in the next week or two. So just very quickly, his last year in the was it Mountain West Conference, which isn't one of the most competitive conferences, 13 games, 20 touchdowns, 17 interceptions. That's a very poor TD-INT ratio really for bad. someone who went in the first yeah, round. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's not like people weren't saying this a year or two ago when he got drafted. It's not like this is anything new now. Anyway, let's move on. I think we probably will see Love starting again unless they go with Bortles because, like I said, Rogers should get suspended. But let's move on. Talking about drafts, I want to talk about what I now believe to be the worst draft class of this century, perhaps the worst draft class any team has ever had in the history of the NFL draft, and that's the 2020 Raiders. Oh, there have been a few busts there, haven't there? And in fairness to the Raiders, not always within their control. Okay, shall we break down who the Raiders drafted in 2020 and just go through this list? Let's go for it. So their first pick, first round, 12th overall, was a name that I said we're not going to mention on the show again. Everyone knows who he is. He's obviously doing a long stretch now. So I think you have to consider that a huge bust. And whatever talent he may have displayed or shown before, if you're going to be spending all your young years in prison, you're a bust. I don't care. Tie that up to, you know, mental fortitude or whatever you want to. He's a bust. Oh, if you're not on the pitch performing for your team, you're a bust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next pick, still first round, 19th overall, Damon Arnett. Now we've seen in the last week that he has been released by the Raiders. Also for... What do we even call this? A psychotic behaviour? Just behaviour unbecoming of anyone in the public sphere as a professional athlete? Damon Arnett was an absolute reach. It was a bit of a shocking decision that the Raiders picked him up in round one. I think most people didn't see him going until either late day two, maybe even early day three. He's a bust. For what he's done, he probably won't get picked up by a team again now. He's a player who's a persona non grata, basically, in the NFL. Their third pick, third round, 80th overall, Lynn Bowden. They traded him, I think, before the season started last season. I think they traded him to Miami for less than a third round pick. I think it was something like a fifth or sixth round pick. So they cut their, their losses on this guy very early. Lynn Bowden's had a few snaps for Miami. I, I, I couldn't tell you if he's still with the team or not now, but he's not with the, the uh, Raiders, let's put it that way. Their next pick is probably the only pick in this draft, you'd say, is maybe successful in any kind of way. Brian Edwards, wide receiver, uh, third round, 81st pick, just after Lim Bowden. I mean, imagine that. Imagine getting to 81st pick before you find a player that is still currently playing for the Raiders. And don't get me wrong, it's not like he was a good pick. I think that he's basically maybe par value 
for a third round pick in that he's what second third on the depth chart wide receiver well he's going to be perhaps going up now <laughs> but uh, yeah it's not like he's a particular talent for what we've seen kind of so he's far. not the guy you want to build your team around is he <laughs> no and then uh, tanner muse john simpson and amic robertson ring any bells charles who are you <laughs> yeah it's a worst draft in history i think and just to contextualize things as well the player who's not getting mentioned was taken 12th overall. And you had on the board still Justin Jefferson, who went 10 picks later. So they could have basically traded away their first round pick and used that 19th pick to pick up Justin Jefferson. He'd have still been on the board when they took Damon Arnett. The 2020 draft, you know, there's players in there who will go to the Pro Bowl, who will go Hall of Fame. It's too early to say right now if it's going to be a historic draft class. It certainly doesn't seem to be a bad one. Maybe not as strong at wide receiver as a lot of people kind of initially thought. Quite a few of those wide receivers are not showing first-round talent or showing busts. But there was plenty on the board that they could have gone with. It's the worst draft, I think, in history. And it's kind of funny that until this point, the kind of talking heads general consensus opinion for the previous worst draft in history also belonged to the Raiders. Now, this goes a little bit before your time, Charles. It was back in 2007. I was going to ask you, does Jamarcus Russell ring any bells for you? No, not particularly. Weave me a story, Joe. Jamarcus Russell was taken with the first pick overall in 2007 by the Raiders. Now, the next two picks off the board were Calvin Johnson and Joe Thomas. But the Raiders, first overall, needing to rebuild... Picture Marcus Russell now, a quarterback taking first round, first pick. He basically flamed out after two seasons, had a 18 to 23 touchdown interception ratio and completed barely more than 50% of his passes. Marcus Russell is generally considered the biggest bust in the 2000s. And we've got to contextualize draft a little bit because draft is taken a lot more seriously these days than it was pre-2000, certainly pre-1990. Draft, it's just a different beast right now with the analytics and stuff that go into it. They had Jamarcus Russell, Quinton Moses, defensive end in third round. That, that doesn't ring any bells for me. Mario Henderson, Johnny Lee Higgins, Michael Bush, John Bowie, Jay Richardson, Eric Frampton. They had a lot of picks and none of them stuck. But Jamarcus Russell alone elevates that 2007 Raiders draft to one of the worst in history. Another one that's bad, I'm going to touch my Vikings here. Now, you've obviously heard of Randy Moss, Charles, haven't you? Oh, of course, yeah. Well, in 2004, the Vikings traded Moss away. They got a seventh overall pick in return for that, and they spent it on Troy Williamson. Does that ring any bells? (laughs) No, I can't say that it does. So, in his rookie season, Troy Williamson dropped 11 passes. In four seasons with the Vikings, he caught 87 passes and had four touchdowns he claimed right so we laughed about jamar chase in the preseason troy williamson claimed to have bad depth perception he was a wide receiver oh no what he he claimed he was dropping balls because he had bad depth perception in the rest of the draft there's basically no names here how did he survive four seasons (laughs) 
I couldn't tell you. He went to the Jaguars, I think, after a season and a half, two seasons. He didn't last long at the Vikings. But, I mean, Troy Williamson, absolute huge bust. Not as big a bust as Jamarcus Russell. I mean, he was a quarterback. He was the first overall. But when you've given up Randy Moss, and this is the guy you replaced him with, I think this is why a lot of Vikings fans are quite itchy about trading Diggs away for a first-round pick. Because we have previous of uh, not replacing our wide receiver one in the best possible way. But... All of this, I think, kind of pales into comparison with what the 2020 Raiders did. If anyone thinks that there's been a draft which is worse than the 2020 Raiders, I'd love to hear it. But I think you just struggle to make an argument. Having two first-rounders who are basically never playing the game again and trading away a third-round pick before the season even starts. I mean, wow. (laughs) That is the bust of all busts. Yeah, that's pretty bad. And then I tell you what, let's move on to the Monday night game, because if we're talking about busts and mistakes, what was happening with the refing in that game? Yeah, look, I think there are serious problems. And the interesting thing is that everyone's talking about the hip check, like that was some kind of thing. Now, I've seen the hip check in slow motion. It looks bad in slow motion. I'm not sure if there's more to it or something that we're missing here. But it's arguable that Marsh should have been called for taunting. At the end of the day, he made the play in the hashes and then ran past the numbers to the Pittsburgh side of the field and said something as the punter was coming on and the punter was within six foot of him. I mean, it's soft, right? Should that be called as taunting? No, it shouldn't. We've had this chat, right? But with the emphasis refs are placing on taunting, you're always putting yourself at risk when you do that kind of thing. Everyone's talking about that, and people aren't talking about stuff like the ridiculous block call that was called on the Bears when they should have scored a touchdown in the third quarter to make it, I think, a three-point game. Jazz, I'm quickly going to talk about rules here for like 30 seconds. The rules on low blocks, you can't do low blocks unless you're in a tight end box. The tight end box is a made-up thing that the NFL made up a couple of seasons ago. It used to be the tackle box, and the tackle box would be the space between the two tackles at each side of a line of scrimmage. The tight end box is two yards further out from that. You're only allowed to make low blocks within that tight end box. Now, when number 68, I can't even think of who the player was, but it was number 68 for the Bears, I think he was a guard, made an attempted low block as they did a power block scheme on TJ Watt. He went down for the low block. He was in tight end box at this stage. So had he made a block, it would have been fine and perfectly legal. He totally missed the block. He absolutely whiffed it. He went down, did a dive, and just rolled away. A flag was thrown. The touchdown that Fields threw was called off, and they had to settle for a field goal. Now, in a game as close as it was, what, 29-27 finish? Now, the game ebbs and flows. It would have gone differently. I know that. But that was four points that the Bears absolutely wrongly had taken off the board because the refs got that totally wrong. There were face masks called they didn't see. There was defensive pass interference when the only person who could... By Anyone who's not a blind man tell you the only interference call you could have possibly made was on the offence. There's all these kind of calls, and we're talking about hip check, which is interesting to say the least, but the refing was terrible. I don't really think there's much debate in this, really. Yeah, I think you know when you've got a Vikings fan and a Green Bay fan saying that the Bears were absolutely hard done by by the refs, you know that's real talk. (laughs) Absolutely, and don't get me wrong, I've got no love for the Pittsburgh Steelers, but you're absolutely right. I didn't think I'd be starting off this pod sympathising with the Bears, but here we are. (laughs) And then on to another game then. Let's talk about the Titans and the Rams, because certainly for me, I think that was an upset, and it's really changed the picture in that division now. Yeah, I guess with the Titans, 
with how they are relying on Henry so much and Henry kind of going, you you really wondered how that was going to affect their season going forward. Because, yeah, as good as the offensive line is, as good as Tannehill can be, so much of that comes with a play action and everything they run goes through Derrick Henry. So for them to put in that kind of performance against the Rams, I mean, it was, it was almost putting the league on notice. It's weird. I still feel that I'm a Titans doubter in some kind of way. I still feel that they've got a bad game that's in them. But Charles, let's look at the rest of the games they have to play this season. They're playing against the Saints next, and as we spoke about last week, I think that the Saints are a rudderless team with a winning record right now, and I think that the Titans should beat the Saints. Then after that, they have the Texans. I mean, you can make a case that the last tough game they have then is the Patriots, because that's followed up by the Jaguars, Steelers, 49ers, Dolphins, and Texans again. I mean, the majority of those sides have losing records, quite bad losing records in the case of Texans, Dolphins, and 49ers, and Jaguars. And then the winning records they are playing are teams that have, you know, obvious weaknesses, and you probably put the Titans at least kind of five-point favourites for. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same as you. Even with Henry in the team, I had doubts around this Titans team, and they've displayed some really impressive performances this season, but also some absolute, you know, calamities. So there's always that thing in the back of my mind that just thinks, when are you going to mess up next? When are you going to mess up next? But you're absolutely right. When you look at that schedule, you just cannot see past the Titans topping the division there. Yeah, and they've played some real stinkers so far this season. Like, they lost 38-13 to the Cardinals week one. You can chalk that up as week one. You can't chalk up losing in overtime to the Jets in week four as first week, like, jitters. Like, Like, you know... What was that about? So despite us saying, like, you know, where will the next loss come from? I feel that they're a team that can just throw a stinker out there any given week Mm. and shock us. But look, you've got to say, with them being 7-2 right now, they're in the first seed spot in the AFC. Can you really see any other team going and getting a better record than the Titans this season? Or are we going to have to see the AFC winner at some point coming through Nashville? No, I think you're right. I can't see it landing any other way than through Nashville, to be honest. Ravens are next closest at 6-2, but I mean, the Ravens are in an extremely competitive AFC North. They really are. And, you know, the Ravens Ravens weren't convincing against the Vikings last week. They had to go to overtime at home. This Vikings team are weird. They're a team of extremes. They should be 0.500, really. But then there's games they've lost. They should have won and won they should have lost. If you're a serious team, I think you should be putting the Vikings to the sword. They're 6-2. and two, They're going to lose games. Titans, I think there's less losable games for them. So look, Titans, I think, will be first seed in the AFC unless we see something drastically change them. Mm, yeah, I agree with you. And then finally then, Joe, why don't we finish on the Browns and the Bengals? Because it was the game that we were really excited to watch. And I mean, it makes the last game of the season, which again is between these two, a really exciting prospect. Yeah, I really enjoyed the game. It was a fun game to watch. What I would say is, though, it wasn't perhaps as close as maybe we thought. After the kind of second quarter, I never really thought the Bengals had much of a chance the Browns seem pretty comfortable in that game. But I mean, like, look, let's look at the AFC North here. Bengals 5-4 and four are bottom of it. Browns 5-4, and four, Steelers 5-3, and three, and then Ravens 6-2. and two. It's so close. Every team that's in there still has a chance to win. There's a lot to happen there. Steelers making a bit of a run, you know, after a bad start. They've won the last four. Yeah, and just focusing on the Browns very briefly, obviously... OBJ has been released from the team. They put up a really terrific performance against the Bengals. I mean, for me, defensively, that was 
one of the best defensive games that I think the Browns have put together this season. It feels like the Browns' defense is back after having quite a few injuries and and quite a few setbacks. They really, really locked down Jamar Chase. And personally, that's where I felt the game was won for them. I totally do not buy into this narrative that some of the media are trying to push around this idea that OBJ was toxic and he was what was stifling the offense. And now that he's gone, Mayfield and everyone is clicking. I have no doubt that there's an element of toxicity around his behavior, but let's not pretend that OBJ being in the team is the reason that Mayfield couldn't connect with wide receivers or the reason that wide receivers weren't getting open coverage or were dropping balls. That's not the reason here, Joe, right? No, I think that if that was the case, we would have seen Mayfield looking for OBJ more and perhaps finding him more. If he really cared what he was thinking and really felt that kind of pressure from him, he'd have tried to get him involved in the game a lot more. Now, as OBJ's dad's video showed, he wasn't looking at him at times. So I, so I think that Mayfield is strong of character enough. And I think he is a leader. He is an alpha in the dressing room. He's not going to get phased by someone like OBJ making noises. I don't think that's going to fuss someone like Mayfield and the pressure he's dealt with throughout his college career and his NFL career to date. So I agree with you. This narrative, I don't think OBJ going really changes anything. I, I, I don't think it changes anything at all. But I felt this Browns team was a good Browns team three weeks ago, and I still think it now. Yeah, completely agree with you. And it's going to be something that I follow quite closely. That division is so tight. And I mean, I would argue that every team deserves to be in the playoffs this season in that division. Obviously, can't happen, but they are all fighting really, really hard. I mean, maybe Steelers, they've been a bit up and down, but look, they're second. I think it could happen. I think it technically could happen with there being seven teams from each conference going to playoffs. There's seven teams that go in from each conference. You're going to have the division winners. So that's four. Then the next three spots are the teams with the three best records. So although it's unlikely because you're playing each other, so you're always taking losses or wins in the division, if you beat every team that's not in your division, you could still end up with a very strong record and feasibly the fifth sixth and seven teams could come from the same division it's unlikely but it's not impossible well buy me a ticket to that wild ride i want in we're saying that about the afc north look at the afc west oh, that's Chargers crazy on top of it five and three then raiders five and three then chiefs five and four then broncos five and four every team in that division has a winning record and every single one of them has five wins it's mad it is bonkers i'm loving it <laughs> So, okay, let's stay on the theme of divisional matchups then and let's move towards our previews for next week. It feels like there are, I would say, two particularly quite important matchups coming. One we briefly discussed, so let's land on that now. Tennessee and New Orleans Saints. I've mentioned before that I feel that New Orleans, they were the worst team, in my opinion, with a winning record in the NFC. I felt that they'd played bad teams... I don't want to say they fluked the first game against Green Bay because that's doing them a disservice, but there was something rotten in Denmark for them to win that game. The Packers weren't the Packers of the next seven games when they beat everyone in front of them. The Packers were playing abysmal, so you can't blame the Saints, of course, for winning that, but that also helped to inflate their record. They're a 5-3 and three team, but I don't think they're going to end up with a winning record this season. If the Saints lose this, it's just going to continue the slide they have, and 
you know, there's plenty of NFC teams with three wins, four wins here and there. They're going to be pulled back into that kind of quagmire of all of those teams who are sitting around there. The Saints, for the season until now, have been, aside from whoever's second in the NFC West, the Saints have filled that next spot in the playoffs. So they've kind of had that sixth seed through most of the season. That's going to fade away for them, I think. Well, they lose to the Titans. They've then got to play the Eagles, who, beyond every rational cell in my body, they keep winning and I don't know how. Then they've got the Bills, the Cowboys. They've still got to play the Bucks. It's not an easy run-in from them. And if they lose this, I think you're absolutely right. It could be the start of a slippery slope that may even see them slide right out of playoff contention. Oh, I think they will slide out of playoffs. Because I just don't think there's enough in this team. Talent on the ball, especially on the offense. Now, the defense hasn't been doing a bad job. Give credit where credit's due. But you look in the skill positions here. I mean, losing Thomas for the start of the season was bad enough. But then finding out he had to have surgery and he's going to be out for the whole season. I mean, that's a stinger. Because you know, Callaway's been chugging along. But he's he's not really a wide receiver to lead this team. And there's very, very little past him. I mean, Traquan Smith, those kind of guys. And not exactly setting the world on fire. There's only so much that you can ask Alvin Kamara to do for you. There's literally only so much. It's interesting that the team picked up Mark Ingram. I think that shows what they're thinking, that they're going to have to try to grind out results as best they can, keep the ball on the floor, because they don't have the quarterbacks to air the ball out with any consistency or, or any skill at all. I feel, I'm making a bit of an early prediction here, but I do feel that the Saints are going to slide right out of playoff contention. You've listed their next few games there. They could be going on a losing streak now. They they could feasibly lose their next five or six games. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one for them. So one to watch with interest. But as we've both claimed already, I mean, New Orleans have come out with a few shock wins and Tennessee have come out with a few shock losses. So it's all up for grabs and it'll be an interesting game to watch, I think. Absolutely. And then finally, let's talk about the Chiefs and the Raiders because that feels the division that they're in at the moment. That's super tight. That's super important. Yeah, this is just this is a weird division, really, in terms of what we're seeing from his teams. The Chargers looked good for a while and then had a couple of real bad losses. And it's hard to really put your finger on how good this Chargers team are. We all know, you know, what kind of player Justin Herbert is, who Keenan Allen is, Austin Eckler, those offensive players. We know what they're about, but they've put in some stinkers. Then, you know, the Broncos. I was saying on the pod last week that them trading away Von Miller was an admission that the season was over for them. Uh, they made me look an idiot with how they played on Sunday. I mean, the defensive performance they put out there was incredible against the Cowboys. Now, they played a cover one formation, which just shut down the kind of explosive plays. But everything the Broncos did looked good, and they were very impressive. Now, the Broncos, until this week, had been pretty rubbish for a good stretch of like three or four games. But, you know, they totally changed that narrative. Even Bridgewater, who I've criticised a lot, put in a relatively impressive performance. So where I'm getting to, what I'm trying to say here is, the AFC West, it's just a mishmash of teams playing great one week, bad for next week. The Chiefs, if we're going to say now that the Raiders are going to be the team that's going the wrong way with everything they've been going through the last few weeks, with them arguably having a soft start to the season and kind of getting that easy start and then now, you know, facing proper teams and struggling. The Raiders, if that logic is to be followed, are the last soft teams that the Kansas City Chiefs actually get to play. You look at their schedule for the rest of the season and it is a tough one. Now, if I'd given you odds on the Chiefs not making playoffs at the start of the season, 
you'd have probably told me to go away. What do you see now, Charles? And what importance do you place on this game? Is this at the point now where it's a must-win for the Chiefs, despite them beating the Packers last week? I always hate to like make really bold statements like that, but I actually do think that. I think there's a genuine, genuine risk they don't make playoffs. Even looking at the Green Bay game, which they won comfortably looking at the scoreline, that was not a great performance from the Chiefs against a Green Bay team that were missing Aaron Rodgers. And I think if they can't beat the Raiders, who you've correctly identified as as having quite a few recent issues and not performing well of late, then I think that's game over for the Chiefs. I don't know how they come back from that, looking at the schedule they've got and looking how they've faced up against tough teams already this season. Yeah, huge game, Charles. I think the Chiefs do have to win this because they're going to be in a hole if they're going into the second half of this season, 5-5. Five and five. That's a big hole for them to get out of, considering the teams that have got to play. Yeah, absolutely. So it feels like we're at that stage in, in the season where there are quite a few really important games on the line here that are going to determine, well, playoff potential or they're the start of slippery slopes down or, or high climbs up. So it feels like we're getting very close to that crunch time for a few of these teams and a few of these divisions. And uh, well, if last week was anything to go by, Joe, who knows? Who knows? Any given Sunday. Yeah. So until then, we'll speak next week. Speak next week. See you then, Charles.